Well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 1, so I'd invite you to open your Bibles there. And uh, we're going to jump right in where we left off. We left off with John the Baptist in the wilderness, and verse 29 is where we left off. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. We see the Trinity reflected here in these verses that the God the Father had, had commissioned John the Baptist to this work, had told him to look for the Holy Spirit of God descending upon the Son of God. And so this is what John is saying. I've seen, I've testified, this is the Son of God. And again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Here in chapter 1, John describes Jesus as the word that brings light and life. We've looked at that together. He describes Jesus as the son of man, the only begotten of the Father. And here now in verse 29, he calls him by the title that summarizes not only the mission of Jesus, but it summarizes the 66 books of the Bible that we hold in our hands, the Lamb of God. He says there in verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This simple sentence is the gospel in a nutshell. This is the, the, the entire good news of Jesus Christ. We saw last week that um, as we looked at baptism, that baptism didn't begin with Christians. If you were with us last week, we were looking at how the Jews practiced uh, baptism for Gentile proselytes in their cleansing ceremonies. And the idea was, hey, you Gentiles, you, you need to get cleaned up uh, and you need to start following our religious law. So what John the Baptist did is he took baptism and he applied it not just to the Gentiles, he applied it to everybody. He said, all y'all need to get right with God. It's not just the Gentiles. It's everybody who needs cleansing. And so being baptized by John, it demonstrated a recognition of their sin. It demonstrated a desire for spiritual cleansing. And it demonstrated a commitment to follow God looking forward, looking ahead to the coming Messiah. Well, this did not fit, sit well with the Jews because they felt like they were righteous. They prided themselves on keeping the law and, and all, and they missed the, the memo, that, the, uh, the spirit of Galatians 3.24 that says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The idea there is that the law serves as an instruction for us to remind us that we are not holy, we are not pure, there's nothing good within us, and that we are deeply, fundamentally flawed. 
that we're stuck on stupid, right? The gospel or the, the law of God shows us his righteous standard and it's always intended to show you that you ain't righteous, right? And so what they had was the law and then they had a system of sacrifices that they would that they would. Uh, uh, partake, partake in on a regular basis. And what were these sacrifices? These sacrifices were temporary atonements to cover their sin. But they did not cover their sin once and for all. The law was intended to point us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ who would cover our sins once and for all by his shed blood. Now, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament and we see it through the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, turn back to uh, Genesis chapter 22 with me. Genesis chapter 22. And we have this familiar story of Abraham, known as the father of faith. Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. Now this isn't uh, a, a test to produce faith. This is a test to show the faith that was already in him. And so um, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And then God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Verse 2 is pregnant with meaning. Um, we have here uh, God saying, hey, I want you to take your only son, Isaac. And if you're familiar with the story, uh, Abraham and, and his wife, Sarah, were, were barren. And they were very old, very advanced in years. And God had promised Abraham that he was going to make him the father of many nations. And Abraham is like... I don't have any kids. Like, you know, how can, you, how can that be? And how, you promised me that I'm going to have all of these things, but I don't have any children. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. And he gives to them miraculously in their old age, he gives to them Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac was the, 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 the promise of this covenant that God had established with Abraham, that he was going to be the father of many nations, and, and you know, that through his seed, ultimately, the Messiah would come. And, uh, and so Abraham loved his son, and we see that there in verse 2. He says, take your, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And this is the first mention of love in the Bible. And it's this deep fatherly love that Abraham has. And this is a picture it's to point us to the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, whom the Father loves, right? And, and it, we have there in verse 2, he tells him to go the, to the land of Moriah to offer his only begotten Son on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And this is really just the, the Moriah is the land of Jerusalem, and this is the, the place where Jesus Christ would ultimately be crucified. And so what we have here is this picture looking forward to the only begotten son who would be sacrificed. And so verse 3 continues, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the, the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes, he saw the place far off, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder 
and worship. Now, he says the lad, and you, know, you might be you know, mistakenly think, oh, this is a little boy. No, this is a, a, a young man. Uh, Isaac would have been about 30 years of age here. Uh, again, keeping with that typology and that picture of Jesus who would be crucified in his 30s. And he says, we're going to go yonder, and we are going to worship. First mention in the Bible of, of worshiping God is, is right here. And so we're going to go worship the Lord, he says. <clears throat> and, uh, and he says, and we, key word there, we will come back to you. Now, this is crazy, right? Because, because God had told him, go sacrifice your son. He said, I'm going to take my son, but we are going to come back. And so Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire... Uh, and the, the, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? <laughs> He's like, look in the mirror, buddy. It's you, right? He, Abraham says, no. He says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together, and then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there. And placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son. Now, again, this doesn't suggest that Isaac is going unwillingly. Isaac's a 30-year-old uh, man. Uh, his dad's an old man. Like, this is not happening against Isaac's will, okay? He's, he's participating in this. Um, <clears throat> so he bound Isaac his son. He laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. Now, right now, you go, what is Abraham thinking? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what Abraham was thinking at this time. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says there that it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. When God was testing him, Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that. This is the, what he is thinking. Only God can tell us what's going on in his heart because the text in Genesis doesn't. But Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. So we know what's going on in Abraham's mind there in verse 10 as he stretches out the knife to slay his son. He's saying, I trust God. I know that even if I, you know, sacrifice my son here, God will bring him back to life. And Hebrews tells us in a sense he did. Here's how. Verse 11 says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and he said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld from me your son, your only son from me. Pointing to Jesus. And then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. By its horns, And so Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And certainly on the mount of the Lord it was. That very place prefiguring, pointing to Jesus' 
crucifixion, dying on the cross in our place for our sin. The point here is that Jesus is the Lamb whose blood saves us. It is, it is that beautiful picture of the Lord being sacrificed. Romans 5 tells us, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of God, in the glory of God. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so back in John chapter 1, John sees Jesus, and he points him out to his disciples, and uh, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's never been about sacrifices that you and I make. It's never been about doing good and trying harder. Every other religion in the world says that you got to clean yourself up if you want to get right with God. Christianity is the only religion that says, no, God loves you so much that he provided the sacrifice for your sin to cleanse and to cover you so that you might find forgiveness and you might find reconciliation from a God that you're separated from. And God, because he loves you, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. David the psalmist, King David, had a miserable failure where he betrayed the Lord and sinned against God in a horrible way. He committed adultery with a gal named Bathsheba and then he killed her husband to cover it up and he was heavy with the guilt of this shame and of this sin. And God gave David this opportunity to repent and to turn to him. And David would say in Psalm 51, Verses 16 and 17, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and a repentant heart, O oh God. Guys, the gospel is a love story. The grace, the mercy, the sacrifice, the atonement for your sin, it comes through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as always, I'm going to give an invitation today at the end of this message for the Lamb of God to take away your sin. Maybe you're here today and, and you have never invited Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Listen, today can be the day where you invite Christ to come in, to cleanse you, where you can believe by faith that God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place and that he offers to you forgiveness and cleansing. He offers the promise to be made new. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And so whether you're here in person, whether you're watching online today, at the end of the message, you can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's not about doing good and trying harder. It's about trusting in the one who did good who is the only one who is good, who gave his life for your sins.
And so, verse 32, John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him, and I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and baptizing on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. And again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now here again, we see that inextricable link between the messenger and the Messiah. Right? And, and what happens is John, verse 32, tells us he, he bore witness. We saw last week that this witness, this idea means to testify to, to what has been heard, to what has been experienced, to what has been received by divine revelation. And here's the fruit, just in case you missed it. Look again at verse 37. It says, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, first of all, they heard him speak. The phrasing in the original language here, heard him speak, it means to understand, it means to perceive, and it means to comprehend. Who is it that they heard speak? They heard John the Baptist speak, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. What we have here in verse 37 is a natural dynamic, if we can phrase it that way, and we have a supernatural dynamic. The natural dynamic is the obedience of the, John the Baptist to speak, right? There, there, this is, certainly it's both natural and supernatural in the sense that anytime somebody represents God today, as I represent God, as I point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I'm speaking to you in the natural. I'm speaking to you obediently in the flesh. Hopefully there's a supernatural component in that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and that I'm asking God to take the truth of his word as I declare it and quicken his word to your hearts. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And so there is that natural component, there's that supernatural component, and, and so the natural component or the natural dynamic is that John spoke. The supernatural dynamic is that the Holy Spirit anoints the words that he speaks, and these two men, by the influence of the Holy Spirit in their life, they heard him speak. Now, in, in that sense, in the natural dynamic, okay, I'm going to preach the word and, and I'm going to give the invitation, but the supernatural dynamic, this is up to God. This is totally God's business, right? I have no control over that. When I give an invitation, and, and I will tell young pastors this as, as I'm exhorting them, because Paul told the apostle Timothy, or the disciple Timothy, he told him, hey, listen, um, do the work of an evangelist in your ministry, and some guys, when, you know, they're endeavoring to teach the Word of God, they don't see themselves as an evangelist. They don't think, you know, that they have evangelistic gifts. I remember I took Pastor Kyle to the Harvest Crusade years ago, and uh, Greg Laurie was, was preaching there, and Kyle had never heard Greg Laurie preach. And Greg Laurie was preaching the, the gospel, and, and, you know, at the end, he gives the altar call in the outfield there at Angel Stadium, packed with ten, you know, thousands and thousands of people, you know. Six or 7,000 people coming forward to receive Christ. And Kyle said to me afterwards, he's like, I was, I was expecting like this really dynamic speaker. And, and, uh, and it, was, 
it wasn't it really wasn't a, a great dynamic message and then all of this I said dude the man's an anointed evangelist he could have said the ABCs and they, people would have been flocking out there he's a gifted evangelist but the, but the fact of the matter is is that we we don't when we preach I don't perceive myself to be an evangelist I, I just I don't see myself that way but here's the thing I take to heart the Bible that says do the work of an evangelist right and by the way this is a mandate for all of us I'm going to drive home in just a minute. We all have this duty to proclaim and to point to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? And, and so I, I will tell young pastors when I'm, when I'm you know, in teaching them how to preach the Word of God, hey, do the work of an evangelist. Don't fail to give an invitation. And don't freak out if you give an invitation and nobody responds. Because the response is not your job. That's a supernatural component. That's up to God. But your job is to deliver the mail and to give an invitation and that's what you will be held accountable for. You will, you will not stand before God and be held accountable for the people who would not listen, who would not hear, who would not respond. You will be held accountable for your faithfulness to point to the Lamb of God and to tell people about Jesus Christ. And so there's this natural dynamic, there's a supernatural dynamic, and the natural dynamic is in our control. Listen, people need to hear you speak. You. Take a good long look in the mirror. They need to hear you speak. Your neighbors, your children, parents, friends, people in your circle of influence, they need to hear you speak. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone, you can circle that word if you're in Romans chapter 10 and write your name next to this, uh, unless someone tells them, and how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. I was reading recently a story, and uh, I, I read this story a long time ago. I just recently had occasion to, to find it and read it again. Um, of uh, Penn Gillette. He's, uh, if you've ever uh, heard of Penn and Teller, they, they do a magic uh, act and so on. Um, and I think Teller recently uh, passed away. But uh, Penn Gillette, uh, in the course of the show, they, they invited up an audience participant to be part of their show. And, uh, and so they do their show. After the show, this participant who they brought up, he struck up a conversation with Penn Gillette. And... Um, he complimented him on the show, uh, and he gave him a little Bible, one of those pocket Bibles. You know, it's got the Psalms in it and the New Testament in it. And he inscribed a really nice, uh, you know, letter just on the front of it, just a really nice note. And, and, you know, just had this conversation. And it really moved Penn Jillette. He remembered it and was retelling the story um, years later. He was retelling the story. And, um, and you know, the, he, as he tells the story, the, the, guy, he, the guy goes, look, man, what a great show. It was a really good time. And, and, he said, and the man told him, he said, I'm a businessman. I'm not crazy. But then he proceeded to, to witness to him, to, to share the gospel with him, and he gave him this Bible. Um, I, I wrote it down because I, I, I wanted to get his words right. But here's what Penn Gillette said about this years later. He said, he was kind. He was nice. He was sane, and he looked me in the eyes, and he talked to me, and then he gave me this Bible. Still had the Bible years later that he had given to him. And Penn Jillette said, I've always said, 
I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share their faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share your faith, not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He went on, he said, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you and I say, hey, this is more important than that. He says, this guy was a really good guy, a very, very, very good man. He was polite, he was honest, he was sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and to give me a Bible. Now, I would love it if that story had this wonderful happy ending where Penn Jillette gave his life to Jesus. Actually, the occasion for him sharing this story was when he was talking to a group of atheists and why he held to his atheistic beliefs, right? So he has not come to know Jesus Christ yet, yet, and you can be praying for his salvation. What happened? This man did, again, if I can phrase it this way, the natural work of obediently sharing his faith. He left the supernatural work to God. And that supernatural work is God's business. But he did the job. Now, shameless plug, we are going to be having, uh, in our midweek groups, we're going to be having uh, some instruction on how you can share your faith. And so what we're going to do is we're going to offer it uh, as a, as a one-off class as well. When our community groups ramp back up and start meeting, we're going to have all of our community groups dedicate uh, a, a couple of weeks to, to sharing uh, our faith. How do we uh, share our faith uh, biblically and what are some ways that we can do that? And so you have that to look forward to. Well, here in John 1, we've got the supernatural result in verse 37, right? The two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus. They heard him speak, to understand, to perceive, to comprehend. Secondly, they followed Jesus. And that means to follow him in union. It means to follow him in companionship. It means literally to go in the same way. Verse 38, then Jesus turned. And seeing them following, he said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. That's significant. I'll come back to that. But the first thing I want you to notice in these verses, I want you to notice the awareness of Jesus. He turns and he sees them. I love the observation that Matthew Henry makes in his commentary. He said, they came behind him, but though Jesus had his back towards them, he was soon aware of them, and he turned and he saw them following. How wonderful is our Lord that he takes early cognizance of the first motions of a soul towards him, and the first step taken in the way of heaven. What communion there is between the soul and Christ that he begins the discourse, right? He takes notice of these two disciples who begin to follow after him. They haven't spoken a word. Jesus turned to them, saw them coming towards him. What is it you seek? 
right? I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. If you were with us when we went through Luke's gospel, we went through this together. This guy went to his dad and he said, hey, give me my inheritance early. I'm out of here. And he went out and he blew it on all the wrong things. And he wound up in literally in a pig pen eating pig slop. Well, here's the story. I put it on the screen for you. It says, when he came to himself, as he's there in that pig pen, I've made a mess out of my life. I've lived in this horrible way, sinful way, apart from my father, right? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father, but when, this is my favorite part of the story, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, and he had compassion, and he ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him, and the son said to him, now the son's been practicing this line, right? He says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And as you continue in the story, the story is the father said, none of that nonsense. Kill the fatted calf. We're throwing a party. My son who was lost is now, is now found. It's a picture of the love of God as a repentant sinner turns to God. It's been said no matter how far you run from God, he's only one step away, and that step is to repent. Just as we see this guy come to himself and go, I've made a mess of my life, and I'm going to return to my father, and, and, and maybe, you know, he, he'll, he'll, you know I, can, I can work as his servant so I can eat. And the father says, no, you're not gonna, I'm not going to, ha I'm receiving you back with, as my son with all the benefits of sonship. I'm not receiving you back as a second-class citizen because of the sinful life you've been living. I'm going I'm to forgive all of that. And, and the father, you see the picture of the father here. When he was still a far way off, and I always, in my mind's eye, I think of this dad as he's longing for his son to come home every day, and he's just looking, and I think maybe he looked down the road from his house, from the place where, you know, he's, he's doing daily work and, and all of this stuff. But the father often, how many times a day, would he just stare down that road to the farthest point that he could possibly see down that road and just watching and anticipating, is that my son coming? Is that my son coming? And I can just see this, and he's, he's looking, and he, oh, somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. Who, who is it that's coming? Is is. Is that him? That's, that's him. And he runs to him, throws his arms around him. Guys, that's a picture of the love of God. And just wanting his son to turn and to come home. And so we see this here, these two disciples. There's the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They're like, him? We're, we're going to go after him. And Jesus turns. And he asks them there in verse 38, what do you seek? Important question. I want to ask you the question, what do you seek in your relationship with Jesus? What is it that you're seeking? See, what Jesus is doing here, he's forcing these men to define their objective. He's forcing them to define their motive. Why are they following after Jesus? See, many people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, and they're still following Jesus for the wrong reasons today. 
We see in the scriptures in John chapter 6, and we'll get there soon enough. But Jesus had a whole mob of people that were following after him, and he would often do this. He preaches a very difficult message. It, it wasn't a you know, country western song played backwards, and you get your car back, and your, your wife back, and your dog back, and your truck back, all of this stuff. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, you know, if any man would come after me, he needs to deny himself, pick up his cross daily, follow after me. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He's talking about a death, a burial, a resurrection, and a placing faith in, in him. And, and many, the text tells us, departed and walked away from him and followed him no more because it was a difficult saying. In Matthew chapter 21, we see all of the multitudes welcoming Jesus in, heralding his triumphant entry with palm branches, right, on Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, right? Save now, God, save now. And, and they're saying, oh, this is the one. And then when it becomes apparent within the week, that he's not coming as a conquering king. And that's what they wanted. They wanted him to come and to overthrow Rome. And that's part of the symbolism of them waving palm branches. Palm branches were a nationalistic symbol, right? And they're thinking, oh, this guy's going to restore us to our, our future glory here and, and all, and, and he's going to overthrow Rome. And when that became apparent that he wasn't going to do that, a week later, as Pontius Pilate came out and he put Jesus in front of them and he put Barabbas in front of them and they cried out, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Crucify him. And Barabbas had, had led an insurrection. He had murdered somebody fighting against Rome and we see their hearts unveiled here. We want the guy who's going to fight against the government. We want the guy who's going to help us establish our earthly kingdom. And so they said to crucify Jesus. Same reason Judas, by the way, betrayed Jesus. Because Judas, he was angling for the position that he would have when Rome was overthrown and Jesus set up his kingdom. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't mindful of eternity and eternal things and of the need for the forgiveness of his sin. He was angling for the inside position so that he could have prestige and authority and again, all earthly stature. And so what we have to do, we have to answer the question, why is it that you follow Jesus? Again, Matthew Henry's commentary, he said the question Christ puts to them is what we should all put to ourselves when we begin to follow Christ and take upon us the profession of his holy religion. What seek ye? What do we design? What do we desire? Those that follow Christ and yet seek the world or themselves or the praise of men deceive themselves. What's he talking about? Well, sometimes people follow Jesus because he's an insurance policy. Well, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll say the prayer. And then I get my insurance policy, and, and the, yet there's no desire within them to actually know the Lord, to actually walk with the Lord, to deny themselves, pick up their cross daily and follow after the Lord, to be made a new creation in Christ. They want to continue living the life that they've been living and focusing on the here and now and amassing their, their you know, eternal king, or their, their earthly kingdom, their earthly, you know, rule and reign but they really just see Jesus as an insurance policy. Some people see Jesus as, hey, you know what? You'd be a handy guy for me to have around. I could use a little patience, and maybe I could use a little bit of, you know, uh, 
peace in my life. So, you know, yeah, I'll say the prayer, but there's really, again, no surrender to the Lord. Some people see Jesus as, you know, he's a cosmic genie. He'll give me my three, wit- my three wishes, you know, or, or this, this cosmic piñata. I just beat him with prayer until all the goodies come rushing out. Some people even, they go, you know what? I'm going to come to church because it would be good for my kids. And church is good for your kids, and that's a, that's a good reason to come. But it can't end there. It can't just be, hey, this is the place where my kids will get straightened out and you know, keep them you know, on the straight and narrow or whatever, so we'll do the church thing. But there's really no surrender in your life. And we all have to take a walk with, hey, am I seeking the Lord as that, as Lord of my life? And today, when I give the invitation, maybe some of you who would have considered yourselves to be followers of the Lord, you need to to answer this same question that Jesus puts to these two men that are coming after him. What are you seeking? What is it that that you're seeking? And so they respond to him and they say, verse 38, where are you staying? This phrase, it refers to place, it refers to state, it refers to time, it refers to condition. The idea, that the question that they're asking them is really steeped in the, the longing of, we want to follow you, we want to be where you are. I want to be where you are. Paul said this to the Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That word present, it means to set near. You know, here at the church, we'll have couples that want to get married and they'll seek us out to take them through pre-marriage counseling. And really, the the goal in pre-marriage counseling is to get you to count the cost. It's get you to really go before the Lord before you, you know, follow through with this lifelong commitment. it's, It's like a tattoo. It's permanent, Right? And, uh, and, oh, yeah, but you can remove a tattoo. Yeah, and you can get divorced, and it leaves a scar and a mark, and it's painful. And, and so this is, a, this is a lifelong commitment, right? So in premarriage counseling, what we're doing is we want to really, we want to get you to a place to where either you make the decision we're not supposed to get married, or you, you go into it with your eyes wide open and you're confirmed this is the Lord's will. And what I'll do in premarriage counseling is I will, I'll take an inanimate object, and, uh, and I will describe it and I will say this represents your desire for marriage. All your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, you know. And, and, and usually this illustration hits the women more strongly than it hits the men. Because the, the woman is looking at this and she's thinking, you know, this, this is, I got my man. I got my ring. I got my hopes for my perfect wedding that I've dreamt about since I was, you know, four years old. Uh, I've got, you know, my hopes for my family that we're going to start, and, and I'm going to cook him dinner, and, you know, and all of these things, right? And, she, and, I, and I say, look, what I want you to do, and I'll, and I'll give to them this inanimate object, and I will say, this represents all of your hopes, all your dreams, all your desires, and what I want you to do, I want you to set it down, take your hands off it, 
And I want you to give God permission to take that from you. If through the course of this, this is not his will, his desire for your life, I want you to have heard from God so clearly that if he tells you to take off that engagement ring and to give it back, that you will be willing to do this. And man, you know, sometimes, the, <laughs> I had one gal once, she's, she's like, I, I don't want to set it down. <laughs> I don't want to let go of this, right? This is the idea, set near. Hey, Lord, we want to, where are you staying? We want to be where you are. That's what we want. We want your will more than anything else. And notice Jesus' response there in verse 39. He says to them, come and see. And this is still the Lord's invitation to you and me today. Come and see. Christianity is a come and see religion. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Taste and see. You actually gotta, you actually gotta chew it up. You gotta ingest it. Come and see. And verse 39 tells us that this happened at the 10th hour. And you read this and you go, why is that in there? What does it matter that it was about the 10th hour? A lot of commentators think this is a subtle clue that the writer of this gospel, John, was one of the two. We're going to find out uh, that Andrew was the other guy. But a lot of people think that, that this is John saying that this was about the 10th hour. Why? Because John is marking the moment when he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Happened about the 10th hour. And you know, as I look at the clock this morning, we're just into the 10th hour. And maybe this morning it might be the 10th hour for you. Maybe online, as you're watching this message, maybe this 10th hour is for you. It was about the 10th hour that he came to know the Lord Jesus. Verse 40, and he says, one of the two who heard John, John the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him, Simon Peter, to Jesus. And now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. We'll look a little bit more at the apostle Peter coming to Jesus next week. But I want to focus on Andrew. What's the very first thing you see this guy do when he comes to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior? He brought his brother. To Jesus as well. And whenever you find Andrew in the scriptures, he's bringing people to Jesus, right? He, he brings Peter here in John chapter 6. He brings a little boy with the fishes and the loaves to Jesus. In John chapter 12, he brings the Greeks who wanted to see Jesus. And, and here's the thing as we close. We were to point people to Jesus. It's the Messiah who has come, and we, his messengers. We need to bring people to Christ. I want to close with five questions. Number one, have you seen Jesus? I'm going to come right back to that. Number two, why do you want to follow Jesus? What is it that you're seeking? Number three, are you inviting others to see Jesus? Number four, if you're not bringing others to see Jesus, what's keeping you from doing that? The fifth and final question, what are some of the practical ways that you can share Jesus 
with others. 